Welcome to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. Here at Fremont, we create space for people to become lifelong followers of Jesus, and we relentlessly pursue His transformation of our neighborhood, our city, and the world. Here's today's message. Today, we end a series that we've been in in the last several weeks uh, that we've been uh, talking about what does it mean to be with and for the city. We've been looking at the prophet Isaiah, my favorite Old Testament prophet by far, and, um, and we see the glimpse of what Jesus came to do, and we're going to see that so clearly today uh, from the words of the prophet Isaiah. And we've been talking about how the posture of God's people is that we are called to be with and for our city. Why? Because God is with and for us through Jesus Christ. He has given us his only son. He is with and among us and for us by giving us the gift of salvation, eternal life, life in the name of Jesus. And so when we go about and think about, well, how do we approach the transformation of the city. One, we need to realize that God is already doing that. We join him, we go with God in what he is already doing in the city. And the four, we, we are for God's kingdom work. We don't do, do this, any of this kind of initiative and partner, partner with ministries in the broken places of our city and in our neighborhood to gain a reputation for ourselves. We do this for the glory of God for the glory of God. And that is what we aim to be. So if you have your Bibles, today we're going to be looking at a passage in Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me, I'll be reading from the New International Version. 65, verses 17 through 25, the prophet Isaiah. This is God's word for us. It says, See, behold, I will create... New heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad, rejoice forever in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. 
1989, there's a movie that came out that uh, garnered many awards. It was based on a book that was written in 1982 by a man named W.P. Kinsella. It's a story of a farmer who builds a baseball field in the middle of his corn crops in Iowa. Despite ridicule from his fellow farmers, he hears a voice that tells him to do this. And as a result, spoiler alert, it attracts the, the ghosts of baseball's past, including shoeless Joe Jackson and some members of the Chicago White Sox scandal many decades before. But if you've seen the movie, you know that it also attracts his father, John, who after a day of playing catch with his son, Ray, as the sun sets over the cornfields and they're just throwing the ball between father and son, John asks this beautiful question. Is this heaven? Is this heaven? To which his son Ray says, no, it's Iowa. But then his father says, I could have sworn it was heaven. It begs the question for some of us, we, any of us that have seen that, especially I think it especially speaks to men and their relationship with their fathers, the poignancy of that moment. And all of us that have had difficult relationships with our dads probably tear up in that moment. Because we understand it's not just throwing a ball around in a cornfield in Iowa, but it's the restoration of relationship and the beauty of that. But it begs the question, what's your heaven? What would, what would make you say, is this heaven? Is this heaven? What would heaven on earth look like for you? Now, we find it in sometimes very glib ways where people talk about, oh, that's heaven on earth. Chocolate, ice cream, Chick-fil-A for some. Meals that are prepared beautifully and, and, and crafted, and as soon as you take the first bite, you've never tasted it before, and you go, oh my goodness, this place is like heaven on earth. What makes us do that? And, and why do we do that? What is it that's within us, in our mind, our, our heart and our soul, that, that longs for something so beautiful, that has a divine taste to it, that we, we long for it? What has God done in us that, that our hearts are almost created for that longing? Now, the, the truth is, is that we have lost heaven on earth ever since we were shut out of the Garden of Eden. In the book of Genesis, we hear the story of the first two human beings of Adam and Eve and how they walked with God in this garden and all that was created for them, a place that was abundant. And they were free to eat from all the trees in the garden, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you know the story, you know that Adam and Eve could not resist that tree. The serpent comes to them and and questions what God has told them about that tree. And I believe that the original sin was not simply 
the act of disobedience of taking the fruit and eating it, and as it says, the scripture of Eve then gives it to her husband and he eats it. It wasn't simply that act of disobedience, but I think, and if, when you talk to people in the Jewish tradition, they also would say that when the serpent says, you will be like God, that part of the original sin is not just the act of disobedience, but it's that desire that's in all of us to be our own gods. We have a hard time submitting ourselves to an authority that we do not see. And human history ever since has been marked by people that are wanting to act like their own gods. And I just did a little bit of research uh, through the internet, um, uh, and on the historical attempts to bring heaven to earth. And depending on the search engine that you might find, it's an interesting exercise. Mentioned in there were things like the rise of communism was an attempt to bring a utopian society on earth. The rise of Nazi Germany and, and the people that first began that they wanted to create a perfect society. There is an evil portion to when human beings try to create heaven on earth. But also mentioned in there is part of our own history. Some of the early reformers did multiple experiments in the cities where they lived. John Calvin's Geneva is one. What would it look like if the word of God was, was, was the ruling force of a particular city and neighborhood. So there are both, both evil and good attempts at bringing that heaven on earth. Why have people tried to do that? Well, I think some of it is, comes from that birthplace of we want to be our own gods. We want to be our own gods. But I think also followers of Jesus have earnestly tried to do this throughout history because they take Jesus' prayer seriously when he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there have been multiple attempts by followers of Jesus to bring what, what would it look like if the kingdom of God reigned here? Christians have done, uh, done multiple things on, in history to try to bring that heaven on earth. But one of the things that I think we need to recognize is that it says in this text and others that God is the one who's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. God is going to do it. And I don't remember a whole lot from my Hebrew classes in seminary, but I do remember this, that the Hebrew word for create found here and also in Genesis is only ever attributed to God. There's a particular verb in the Hebrew scriptures that creating is reserved for God. Making, humans do all the time. But creating is something that God does. And that is the word that's used here, that, that God is going to do this thing. Now, does that leave us off the hook? Is there no responsibility then for us? We just sit around and wait and wait for God to do this thing? Well, the truth is Christians have adopted that posture. Some of you may have run into, or maybe you hold this belief. Well, God's gonna 
tear this all apart anyway one day and make all things new so we can just use and neglect his creation the way that we want. Christians have done that. Others have have swung to a, a different side and said, well, no, our role is to be a part of what God is doing in this act of restoration here and now, not because we're trying to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, but because we long to give people a glimpse of what God's heart is like. Now, where do you fall on that? Where do you think you should fall in that spectrum? Now, the passage in Isaiah describes what God intends for this new heaven and new earth. It's a new Jerusalem. It's a city made new, a restored Jerusalem. With all that is going on in our current events and news right now, can you picture that part of the world rising from rubble and destruction and being made new? Can you picture what it would look like for flourishing and beauty to be in a place that has been destroyed again and again and again? I think all of us that have lived and have heard of the multiple conflicts throughout history in the Middle East can say that for peace and flourishing to actually enter that land, only God could really do that, right? The the confusing complexity of the, the people involved in those conflicts is so deep that I think most of us would say, my goodness, for something different to come, that would be an act of God. But what does this mean for us now? Knowing that God one day will create a new heavens and a new earth. What does that mean for us now? Well, I hope is that that this church, that we as as a people of God, that we are with and for the city of Sacramento because we believe that as we do that work with God and for God, that we are giving our neighborhood and our city and the world a glimpse of what God's heart is truly like. We are giving people a glimpse of the heart of God. This past week, I flew to Nashville for some training with the the new ministry that I'm, I'm embarking on in January, Standing Stone. It's a ministry of being a pastor for pastors and ministry leaders. And I had a lot of time on the airplanes, and so I got to enjoy Southwest's fine choice of movies. And, um, and I found myself on the four-hour and 45-minute flight choosing the movie The Flash. Now, I know some of you have heard me talk about, about superhero movies. I have a penchant for these movies. They're usually Marvel movies. Those that are like really into this are now like wanting to leave because I've just mentioned a DC superhero, The Flash. But I bring this up to say, have you ever noticed that all of these movies, the superhero, their origin story is tied up with something very broken in their past? In fact, the hurt that they experience in the past shapes their present and their future. And without spoiling too much of the movie, if you haven't seen it, The Flash is about somebody wanting to go back and change the past so that their present isn't riddled with the pain of that memory. 
The Flash is all about trying to travel back into a different time, change the circumstances so that something that tragic would, that happened wouldn't exist in the present. Now let's just bring that to us for a moment. How many of you could think of something that if you could go back and change it, you would? Something you did, something that you said, something you didn't say, something you didn't do. And if you could go back and change it, that decision, that comment, that brokenness, you would do that in a heartbeat. Well, what we learn from those kinds of movies is that actually the people that we are today have been shaped by those things, that we don't do certain things that we may have done in the past because we learned, oh my goodness, that brought so much hurt. That hurt so much when that happened to me. We can't change the past, can we? But I tell us all this to ask us then this question. What would knowing the future do to your present? If you knew your future, how would it change your present? Now, we've seen that movie too, right? Like when somebody has the ability to forecast the future, it usually looks like this. They play the lottery and they get it right. They bet on sports games and they get it right. That's what usually happens, right, in those kind of stories when somebody is given the ability to foretell the future. But what Scripture is actually telling us here in Isaiah, and also we're going to hear from the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is that when the people of God know their future, it's supposed to impact their present. When we know what God is going to do, it affects the way that we live here and now. When we know the trajectory of God's heart and plan for the world, it should impact the way we see our present and what we do with the present. So let's look just briefly at what God's new heaven and new earth will do and and hold that question in in your hand. Knowing this, is our response to simply Use, maybe even neglect what we have now because God's going to make it all things new later. Or are we going to see this as an invitation to join with God in his work to give the world a glimpse of what is coming? But the scope of God's new creation, maybe as I read the passage, you picked up on these things. Did you know that there's going to be no more weeping and crying? Now, we weep and we cry for a lot of reasons, something we've lost, something that we are grieving, the disappointment, the guilt, anger. No more weeping and crying. Did you pick up on the fact that old age and decline of our bodies? No more. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Old age and decline of our bodies will be no more. Amen again. Get this. We will enjoy the work of our hands. We will enjoy the work of our hands. You you can't hear this without echoing back to the, 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 
the book of Genesis and the Garden of Eden and how, how work became like a curse and it became so hard, but here's the restoration of work. We will work in the new heavens and the new earth, but we will enjoy this work. By the way, these passages and others in the scriptures suggest that the new heavens and the new earth will not be simply singing songs on clouds with a harp in our hand. That is not a biblical idea. There will be a work in which we enjoy the flourishing of the things that we help make. The next one, when it says, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, but they will be a people blessed by the Lord. You know how I interpreted it? Parenting will be a joy. <laughs> Can I get another amen? Parenting will be a joy. I think one of the greatest fears that all of us that are parents have is that our, that our kids, if we don't say the right things or do the right things, oh, they're doomed. That's the fear that we all have, right? Well, through the prophet Isaiah, God says, all of that taken away. The raising of our children is a joy. That's not all. Finally, it says, creation is no longer at odds with one another. Did you catch this picture of wolves and lambs feeding together? Lions not hunting, but feeding on straw. What's amazing about this picture is that what Isaiah is saying, what God is saying through Isaiah, is that the scope of the new creation covers everything. Nothing is left untouched by this new creation of God. This is the new heavens and the new earth. And I want to invite you now, as I read for the next couple of minutes, another description of this new heavens and the new earth from the book of Revelation. Some of you may want to close your eyes and picture this. You're, you want to visualize it. Some of you can look wherever. But you'll notice when the Apostle John, who penned these words inspired by God's Spirit, the imagery he's drawing from is this in Isaiah. And it reads like this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God and they will be my children. And a few verses later, it says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide as high as it is long. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb of God is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut. There will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river, of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, that's where we're going. That's what God is creating. So what will we do with this? We can simply wait for that. Wait for God to recreate. Or we can join with God for his glory, for his kingdom and show the world the heart of God is with and for all of us. Will you please pray with me? Gracious God, We thank you. We know the future. 
And may that future knowledge affect our present. May we be a people that join with you in the restoration of things, in the healing of the nations, by proclaiming boldly that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the Lamb who is seated on the throne. And he is making all things new. Give us strength. Give us courage. Wisdom and discernment for this hour. May we join with you and for your kingdom as we are with and for our city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit fremontpress.org. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Our service times are 9 a.m. in the Sanctuary for Classic Worship and 10.30 a.m. in the Community Life Center for Modern Worship. You can catch the live stream of both services at fremontpress.org. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to get the latest episode each week. Thanks for listening. 